days, I thought it would be nice to explore some of the Psalms together to be able to gain a perspective on what God would be saying 1000 BC, 1000 years before our Lord and Savior walked the soil of Palestine. Each of these Psalms deals with personal issues of our lives, though the first one we're considering today deals with national and international issues that I thought would be pertinent for a weekend such as ours, the 4th of July celebrations. So having completed our series in Deuteronomy, for the summer I'd like you to turn now to the Psalms, and today we're looking at Psalm 2. Now what's fascinating about Psalm 2 is that it's part of a collection known as the Royal Psalms. Royal Psalms are various Psalms throughout, scattered throughout these books that pertain to the idea that God is the ruler over all. You're going to notice here that there is no superscription at the start of Psalm 2, unlike, say, Psalm 3 and what follows. Psalms 1 and 2 are introductory. They help us to get a sense of what God intends. Psalm 1 challenges us to meditate on God's word. Psalm 2 challenges us to reflect upon God's rule. And that combination moves you forward now to be able to think through carefully the richness of this poetic language that relates to everyday life. Now for you musicians, what will fascinate you is that in these 12 verses in Psalm 2, you have four stanzas. We've picked up on that in our outlines this morning. And furthermore, each stanza has three verses associated with it. So obviously verses 1, 2, and 3 are your first stanza that would be sung by the Israelite people in a way that would acknowledge that God is the ruler. When they would complete stanza 1, they would go to 4, 5, and 6, stanza 2, and sing those verses to God, and they would do so in unison. And so by connecting your first and second psalms, what God is doing now is challenging you to think biblically, Psalm 1, and then furthermore, to think strategically about God's sovereignty, verse 2, and it moves you onward in life. So having said that, I want you to think about Psalm 2 in relationship to our nation, in particular on this Independence Day weekend, but furthermore, God's relationship to the nations at whole because what we are seeing throughout the world is a declaration of independence from God. And that's what this particular psalm now addresses as we read, Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. And then he rebukes them in his anger, terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord, he said to me, you are my son, today I have become your father. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You'll rule them with an iron scepter, you'll dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, kiss the son, 
lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way, for his wrath can flare up at a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So let me add, as we're about to go to prayer, that not only is this a royal psalm, this is a messianic psalm, meaning that it has direct reference to Christ Jesus coming into this world, and this reference is given 1,000 years before his actual arrival. And furthermore, when you look very carefully, you are going to see both the first and second comings wedded in Psalm 2, sometimes dealing with the resurrection of Christ, at other points dealing with the return of Christ, and some of these verses are, are quoted repeatedly in the book of Revelation. So now you're beginning to see the expanse of this psalm, the richness of this psalm, written about a thousand years before Christ's coming, but tremendous bearing upon him and upon the way he relates to this world today. That sets the stage now for this study together. Let's look to God in prayer. And Father, we thank you for, for being our God. You're sovereign. You rule. You reign. And we can come before you at a point of need. I thank you for the people in this service, the infant service of our three morning services, the newest, for laying it on the hearts of people to start this gathering, and for the wonderful way you bless. I'm praying that you'll speak personally to each need here, because we realize one thing we can't do is to declare independence from you. We need you. We are not self-created people. We are people created in the image of God with a sinful nature inherited from our first father, Adam, and wife, Eve. So I pray that we can address these issues in a way that honors you as we speak globally, nationally, and personally, connecting the dots, and furthermore, connecting the dots between Messiah's first coming and second in this psalm that prophesied these things. Committing all these matters to you now, Father, as we seek your word and your will, praying in Jesus' name, amen. God bless America. It's a speech that came with that particular ending delivered by George Bush several years ago. But that speech and that ending caught the attention of Italy's Minister of European Affairs. His name's Rocco Battiglioni. And so he wrote an article titled Of God and Men in the Wall Street Journal. And he addressed the phrase, God bless America, by commenting, quote, It's likely that in the European Parliament, the United States President would be considered unfit for his job by saying that. Even worse for Europe's legislators would be that he's not ashamed to express those beliefs so clearly and so publicly. To this day, when we utter one nation under God, we have to take into account the significance of the words that we're expressing. 
And when we hear a statesman at the end of a speech state, God bless America, we need to link it to the last verse of Psalm 2, which tells us, Blessed are all who take refuge in him when we say, God bless America. This psalm, then, is written for people who are involved in political realms, which means you and me, because we have the right to vote. And so we have to understand how this psalm relates to our nation, how it relates to the nations, and how it relates to the ruler of nations, Jesus Christ, the sovereign one. So now, with these four stanzas musically set before us with three verses for each stanza, we'll draw out four observations that relate to modern life today. And the first one is this. Number one, God's authority is being challenged. We see it now in verse 1 through 3. Notice he begins with a question, a great way to start. Why, he asks, do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? When he asks the question why, he's basically saying this is fruitless. What's the point of this? What's the meaning of trying to rebel against God? Now, we learn from the book of Deuteronomy that God's moral law continues to this very day. And so there's national law, but above national law, no matter what nation you live in, is moral law. It's unchanging. It's fixed. The challenge is, is when na nation's laws are contradicting God's moral law. That's rebellion. And now the psalmist poses the question, why? Why is it that nations enact laws with regard to abortion rights, or homosexuality, regarding stem cell research, embryonic-wise and otherwise, and so forth? Why? Why do the nations conspire? And now he becomes a little more particular. He goes from the words, word nations, peoples, because he knows that it's peoples who make up nations. And the peoples plot in vain. Circle the word plot in your Bible and draw a line back to Psalm 1, verse 2. In Psalm 1, we're told, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Circle the word meditate. Connect the two. The Hebrew word for plot in Psalm 2 verse 1 is the very same word for meditate in Psalm 1 verse 2. Now, make the connection. What he is saying is that there will be policymakers who develop national laws that are opposed to God's moral law. And they meditate and they reflect and they plot on their national proposals, their national laws. He uses a word that drew out a physical imagery in the mindset of the Hebrew reading this, because when a Hebrew would meditate upon God's law, he would rock in his chair. You ever see one of those PBS uh, programs where they will show a student of Torah, and he will be memorizing Torah as he rocks in his chair, and he's mumbling he's on these words back to God. He's meditating. That's the word. 
Now, what he is saying here, the psalmist, is that these people are staying up late and getting up early to devise policies, national policies, that are standing in opposition to God's moral law, Psalm 1, verse 2. Therefore, God's people need, day by day, week by week, in churches such as ours, to meditate upon God's law, God's word, so that we realize that there is a law above the law. There is moral law that stands above national law, and we can then recognize that when national law is enacted, that's not necessarily moral law that's being applied. Not everything which is legal is moral. Having said that, it's critically important then that the believer can draw the arrow between Psalm 1 verse 2 and Psalm 2 verse 1 and see here how there will be some who meditate, who plot upon a policy that enacts national law, but God's people are called upon to reflect upon that which reflects moral law and continuously evaluate whether national law is truly reflecting moral law. And when it's not, they need to stand against the current, against the flow of the culture. Do you remember Yosef John? For those of you that were around in the early part of um, this decade, Yosef John came to speak at our church and spoke from the pulpit. He was one of the leading pastors in all of Europe. He was pastor of Second Baptist Church in Romania until he was exiled by the Romanian government in 1981 under the communist regime of Ceausescu. Uh, he would sit around our table and talk about his experiences in my home before the times he would speak in our church throughout a weekend. In one of his articles, he pens these reflections. Years ago, I ran away from my country to study theology at Oxford University. In 1972, I was about ready to return to Romania, and I discussed my plans with some fellow students. They pointed out that I might be arrested at the border. One student asked, well, Joseph, what chances do you have of successfully implementing your plans? I asked the Lord about it, and God brought to mind Matthew 10, verse 16, I send you as sheep in the midst of wolves. And he seemed to be saying to me, tell me, what chance does a sheep surrounded by wolves have of surviving five minutes? Yosef, that's how I'm sending you back to Romania. Totally defenseless, without a reasonable hope of success. If you're willing to go like that, go. If you're not willing to be in that position, don't go. Zahn went on to write, the leaders were obviously plotting against the Lord. After I returned, I preached uninhibitedly. Harassment and arrests came. One day during interrogations, an officer threatened to kill me. And then I said, sir, your supreme weapon is killing. My supreme weapon is dying. Sir, you know that my Bible teachings are now all over the country on tape. If you kill me, I will be sprinkling them with my blood. And whoever listens to them, after that's going to say, I better listen. Yosef sealed those words with his blood. They will speak ten times louder than before. So go on and kill me. I win the supreme victory then. 
the officer sent him home. That gave me pause. For years I was a Christian who was cautious because I wanted to survive. I had accepted all the restrictions the authorities had placed upon me because I wanted to live. Now I wanted to die and they wouldn't oblige. Now I could do whatever I wanted to in Romania. For years I wanted to save my life and I was losing it. And now that I wanted to lose it, I was winning it. Meanwhile, the leaders continue to plot against me. And he drives the point home from Psalm 2. Never assume that national law is equated with moral law. The wise believer meditates on God's word day and night, as those opposed to God's word will meditate upon their own policies they want to enact into national law day and night, but there will eventually be a collision between two streams of thought, moral law and national law. Never assume that one is equal and equivalent to the other. And so he goes on now, becomes even more particular in verse 2. The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. In other words, the Hebrew name Yahweh, which was the relational name for God. He wants a relationship with you through Christ Jesus, who died for your sins, you see. But read on. And against his anointed one. And you see... Now, these rulers, he's describing internationally, are not only opposed to the relational God, but they're opposed to the relational God's anointed one. Who's the relational God's anointed one? Anointed one is another name for, in the New Testament, the word Christ. Christ means anointed. In other words, these individuals are utterly opposed to Christ reigning over their lives and over their nation. And that's why people get worked up when somebody, say, at the benediction, the closing of an inauguration, would pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Because now we are making a statement regarding exclusive claims of sovereignty at that point. And so those whose idea of national law is in opposition to moral law become squeamish because they realize that here is somebody who's placing moral law above and beyond and challenging people to reflect upon that. Which was exactly what Peter did in Acts chapter 4. Because after Christ had been raised from the dead, he quoted Psalm 2. Listen to Acts 4, verse 25. You might even write, want to write that passage next to Psalm 2. Acts 4, verse 25, on through 30. Listen to what Peter says. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Quote, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and his anointed one. Sound familiar? How does he apply that? Acts 4, verse 27. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you, what? Anointed. Connect the dots. You see what we got here now? 
This psalm, 1,000 years prior to Christ Jesus' birth, is already making a statement with regard to who is going to be conspiring against Jesus Christ, sending him to his death. That shows you how supreme God is, that he can control events and predict events 1,000 years before they happen in poetic language. And yet at the same time make relevant statements regarding what is happening in the world today where nations stand utterly opposed to the will and the word of God. Therefore, we find Yahweh and his son, the anointed one, Christ, referenced in verse 2, and Peter picks up on it in Acts 4 and says this pertains to Christ's death. And yet we see continual plotting throughout the world today. So now, the psalmist, David, in verse 3, says, okay, let me, let me quote these folks, these policymakers worldwide who think they're in control of their nations, but in reality are not in control. Now, to put verse 3 in proper perspective, what these are doing, these leaders, is that they are attempting to resist God's moral law as enacted by the Father and executed by the Son. Notice the words there. These political world leaders worldwide are saying, let us break their chains. Whose chains? The chains of the Father and the Son. In other words, we don't want to be chained to moral law. We don't want to be chained to having to follow God's law. We want to enact our own policies, even though they may run contrary to God's will. So let's break this yoke, this chain that we have in relationship to God. Throw off their feather, fetters. Whose fetters? Fetters of the Father, the fetters of the Son, you see. God's authority is being challenged. And already we see messianic teaching regarding the crucifixion of Christ and the plotting of Herod and Pilate. But here comes a second observation, comes with the second stanza musically in these verses, verse 4 down to verse 6. The one enthroned in heaven laughs, and the Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger, terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I've installed, notice that it's past tense, my king on Zion, my holy hill. Stop right there. Here's your second observation. What's happening globally? Number two, God's plan has been enacted. Let's see how he went about enacting his plan. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. Now notice here, he is seated. Furthermore, he is enthroned. Draw another line from verse 4 back up to verse 2. The kings of the earth take their stand. They're standing while the sovereign king of the world is seated. Do you see the contrast he's making? They are standing and trying to control the events of their nation, which are getting out of their hands, such as in Iran with Ahmadinejad at this moment. While on the other hand, the sovereign one is not standing, he's seated. Now, poetically, the language here is such that where it speaks of his laughter, this is the laughter of security. This is 
the laughter of sovereignty. This is the laughter of assurance that everything is under control and working according to his plan. And when the leaders, such as Ahmadinejad and others, tried to usher in a false messiah in Iran, then now what's becoming a student-led rebellion in the streets of Tehran, influenced, interestingly enough, by a large number of Christian students, there is a growing movement of the spirit on the streets of Iran. The result is the one seated enthroned in heaven laughs. 2007. I clipped this out. It's entitled Iran's Demographic Crisis. In 1985, the average Iranian woman gave birth to 5.6 children, one of the highest birth rates in the world, consistent with the Ayatollah Khomeini's call to create, quote, soldiers for Islam, unquote. 1985. After their war with Iraq, which killed between 500,000 and 1 million Iranian men, Iran's high birth rate was viewed as a liability. In 1993, the government of Iran enacted a family planning law, sound familiar, that not only encouraged the use of birth control, but eliminated maternity leave after three children. The results were unprecedented. In seven years, Iran's birth rate dropped to less than replacement level, two births per woman. Iran's population, which doubled between 1968 and 88, was now growing at less than 1% per year. It's prediction time by this demographer, 2007. While family planning groups were celebrating, a writer in Asia, under the pen name of Spengler, wrote, like China, Iran's plunging birth rate has produced a rapidly aging society. This means fewer and fewer working age Iranians are going to be able to support its elderly pensioners. To make matters worse, there are signs Iran's oil reserves are dwindling. By some estimates, Iran will no longer be able to export oil by 2020. Therefore, against this looming crisis, we predict belligerence belligerence toward the West and toward Israel. In the West, an unfavorable ratio of workers to retirees can place uncomfortable burdens on taxpayers, but in places like Iran, it can destabilize the society, threaten the regime. This is especially so when you consider another demographic fact. Ethnic Iranians are bare majority now within Iran. Therefore, we predict Iran's aggressive foreign policy is going to be a response to the coming crisis. Iran either makes a bid for regional dominance now or risks disintegration, quote, unquote. Meanwhile, Ahmadinejad, who thought he had a victory, finds himself being challenged. Khomeini, who thought he had sealed the way for Ahmadinejad to be victorious, finds himself as cleric being challenged. Meanwhile, God, enthroned in the heavens, laughs. You see what we're saying? It's the laughter of sovereignty, the laughter of security. It's the laughter of everything is under control. But he doesn't stop there. 
He inches poetically, this psalmist does, toward Jesus. In verse 5, then he, God, rebukes them in his anger, terrifies them in his wrath with predicting the second coming of Christ by going back to the first coming of Christ, which in essence has not even happened yet because David's writing 1000 B.C. But notice he uses past tense language as if the event has already occurred. That's how certain God is that he's in control. I have, not will. You see it? I have installed, past tense, even though it's yet to come, my king on Zion, my holy hill. God's chosen person, I have installed my king. God's chosen setting, Zion, Jerusalem, and Israel, which now has become the hot seat of international tension and conflict. Yet God remains enthroned, while the kings, according to verse 2, take their stand. You see the contrast? So God is ruling, and the people are grappling with who's truly in charge. And the one who meditates on God's word day and night, such as this congregation, has something to say to the international issues of the hour. For example, Matthew 27, verse 37, we're told that above his head they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Why, in Matthew 27, verse 42, people are mocking. He saved others. They said, but he can't save himself. He's the King of Israel. And yet here we find in Psalm 2, verse 6, God stating, I've installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. It's interesting. 1940s, India. Great Britain had been ruling in India since the 1600s, give and take. Their rule came to an end in the 1940s, and so a group of social scientists decided to do a study to see the impact of the end of British rule on the, on the nation. You know what? They gave up after six months. Why? They discovered as they went from village to village to village that most people were not even aware that the British were there. None of them even knew that Britain had ruled. They were oblivious the king. In Psalm 2, we find them saying the kings of the earth take their stand. But they're here today, gone tomorrow, forgotten forever. And yet God sits enthroned in the heavens, enacting his plan. And it's past tense, I have installed my king, past tense, even though he's speaking prophetically now, on the throne. And that astounds you and me when we see the security, the sovereignty, and the execution of God's plan internationally, all according to his purpose. And so a third now observation emerges here. And it's this number three. God's Son has been revealed. Beginning in verse 7. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. Notice now he's back to capital L-O-R-D. But now notice what the psalmist says. He said to me, you are my son. Today I've become your father. Camp right there. Do those words look familiar? If you spend time in your New Testament, 
And who's saying this to who? Where it says, he said to me, he's projecting the psalmist is ahead to the time of Christ Jesus. Where Christ is saying that God said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten, I have become your father. In the, in the King James, I have begotten thee. Now the question becomes, and when did this take place? Was he simply human but not divine? He was born, but there's no divinity in him? That's what some folks thought when a few weeks back they drove up my driveway again. I didn't tell my family about this. I thought I'd save it for today. Second time now in the past year, they drove up halfway the driveway, got out of the car carrying briefcases, black suits, white shirts, and black ties. And I was dressed like I normally dress in my jeans, except for on Sundays. And I was Tuesday's my day off, so I was working outside. And pretty nice day, and they're coming my way. I keep a Bible out uh, to reference when I take a break, when I work outdoors, and I love working outdoors. They're coming my way, and I thought, here we go again. And I know what's in their briefcase. So they come up to me, and they say, hi, and they introduce themselves. I said, hi. I said, my name's Gary. And they said, uh, can we hand you some literature? I said, happy to take your literature, and chances are your literature is going to involve something with regards to the end times and some of the areas where you and I are probably going to defer on salvation. You believe salvation is by works, and I believe that salvation, according to Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10, is by grace. Furthermore, I said, you're probably going to tell me somewhere in the midst of our conversation that Jesus Christ was not divine, and somewhere in our conversation I will be telling you that Jesus Christ is both 100% God and 100% man, two natures in one person. And the third area we're probably going to defer on is that you will not believe in a literal heaven and hell, hell being for eternity and so on. And they were standing there looking at me. And their first question was, do you attend the free church? I said, yeah, I do. I'm pre-regular. <laughs> and so we began to talk, and the one guy said to the other, we were told he attended the free church. Uh, we carried on a bit of a conversation. And I said, one of the problems with regard to your view of Jesus Christ is that when you get to this idea of Today I've become your father. You're thinking of simply uh, a human birth, and you are assuming then that there is no divinity in him. But let me read to you, I said, from Acts 13, verse 33. Do you have a Bible, I asked them. And Well, we got a lot of literature, but do you have a Bible, I asked them. And they said, well, not honest at this moment. I said, I've got one. And so I went over, I got my King James because I recognized this particular group does respect the King James Version. I turned to Acts 13, verse 31, 32, 33. And here in verse 33, now this is King James, God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children, in that he hath raised up Jesus again. I pause. I look at them, look back down. As it is also written in the second psalm, 
Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And I said, when he speaks of the second member of the Trinity, he's speaking of someone who is his spiritual equal. There's spiritual equality, there is practical authority, and the day he begot Christ Jesus was not when Mary gave birth, it's when Christ was raised from the dead where he is making a statement, a declaration, a decree that this is the one who inherits the earth, the kingdoms, the nations, I said. And there's this pause in the conversation. And they said, well, you must go to the free church pretty regularly then. And I, and I said, yeah, I, I worship there regularly, though when the senior pastor gets up to speak, I get up too. I tend to walk around a lot, I told them, while he's speaking, because uh, I guess I have attention deficit disorder or something like that, with a smile on my face. Well, as they were heading back to their car, and we were joking back and forth, I just said, if you ever come out, though, I know the senior pastor would love to greet you at the end of the service. And um, we parted ways on good terms. But what I wanted to do was to teach them lovingly, in an easy, relaxed manner, grace, divinity, and matters of eternity, all locked into Psalm 2 as it related to the ministry of Christ Jesus. Verse 7 says, He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. And you're going to want to write in there, Acts 13, 33, in the word resurrection. So now in verse 8, he says, Ask of me, the father says to the son in essence, I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. And that puts into context then what was happening at the beginning of Matthew chapter 4, where Jesus Christ was being tempted by Satan. And the last of the three temptations was if he followed Satan's strategy, Satan would grant him all the nations and kingdoms of the world. What Satan was doing at that point was tempting Christ Jesus as to whether or not Christ Jesus believed Psalm 2, that God the Father had the capacity of providing the kingdoms of the world, the true inheritance that would come through death and resurrection. And Satan was trying to get him to avoid the death. And as a result of this process in the wilderness. Satan failed, Christ succeeded, and the kingdoms are Christ's on God's terms. You see verse 9? Verse 9 is repeated three times in the book of Revelation. You might want to jot these verses down. Revelation 2 verse 27, 12 verse 5, and 19 verse 15. Because now we've seen how we've gone from the conspiracy of Herod and Pilate regarding Christ's death to the phrase, today I become your father, referring to the resurrection, to now in verse 9, you will rule them with an iron scepter, which relates to the second coming of Christ. And he has sequentially led you poetically 1,000 years before Christ's coming through the various critical aspects of Christ's ministry. Death, resurrection, second coming. Astounding. And God, enthroned, teaches us these words. So then your third observation, 
God's Son has been revealed. Verses 7 through 9. We get then to the end of this musical selection where the psalmist has wisdom to share to all the leaders of this world. When he says, therefore, he wants to therefore connect everything he said to some recommendations for the future. When he says, therefore, you kings, the ones he referred to in verse 2, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. The question is, what do they need to be wise concerning? What are they needing to be warned concerning? Notice he says, serve the Lord with fear. Typically, rulers throughout history have wanted others to serve them with fear. What God is saying is that when you follow biblical principles, and when God's people follow biblical principles, and enact these principles politically, nationally, and internationally, on God's terms rather than ours, we will then be selecting leaders who serve the Lord with fear, and when we don't operate that way, the result will be those leaders will produce fear and require service of the people they lead. And we see now the implications globally. So leader, rather than staying up day and night and plotting in vain, meditating in vain, in Psalm 2 verse 1, he's saying to all the leaders, you should get on your knees and meditate upon God's word in Psalm 1 verse 2. 1, 2, verses 2, 1, you see. And you've drawn the arrows. Serve the Lord with fear, he says. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. What do we mean by that in verse 12? When somebody approached a ruler, they would kiss the signet ring of the ruler. And you know what was inscribed on the signet ring of the ruler? A statement of his divinity. Such as Pharaoh in the Old Testament such as the Roman Caesars in Christ's time and beyond. So when one would approach the king, they would serve that king with fear by kissing the signet ring and in essence ascribing divinity to the Caesar, the ruler. What God is doing now is he's saying, all you rulers of the land, kiss the son's signet ring and recognize he's the one who died, rose again, and is enthroned which now puts the kiss of Judas in even greater perspective. You see? You tie that together, and here's your fourth observation. God's requirements have been provided. Serve the Lord with fear, he tells leaders. For those who vote on leaders, Vote for those who serve the Lord with fear, otherwise you will be serving those leaders with fear. He tells leaders, rejoice with trembling. When he says, kiss the Son, he's saying, in essence, recognize Jesus Christ's sovereignty, his divinity, submit to him. And when you do that, look at the result that God promises to the nation. Blessed. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And now it makes sense when a leader says, God bless America. I hope this sheds light on the international matters of the hour. Let's stand for a word of prayer. So, Father, on this Independence Day weekend,
as we begin our summer our hearts teach us your word we want to meditate upon your word day and night never assuming national law is moral law that there is a law above the law and it's your law and when we follow your will based on your word the blessing is ours may we take these truths and apply them to our lives and may God bless America in Jesus name Amen God bless you <laughs>